0: hi i'm anna claire harper and you're listening to the return a property and investment podcast sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on linkedin anna claire harper hi i'm anna and this episode i am excited to be joined again by damian fock So as regular listeners will know, Damien is an experienced building surveyor and former financial advisor with over $2 of transactions experience. And his own residential portfolio enables him to retire some time ago for the first time at 32. I've managed to coax him back into employment, so he's also now the CIO of SBI Capital. So welcome back to the podcast, Damien.
1: Thank you very much. I feel like you should just record that intro bit now and press play and repeat every time. It's just the same thing, isn't it? Possibly.
0: And then at least you wouldn't have to listen to me repeating myself. You're probably right. Never mind. Next time. So I thought in this episode, it would be interesting to share some predictions for the residential property market in 2021. So the market has been all over the place in 2020 with some key and really important trends showing up. And one of the most common questions that we are getting asked is what next?
1: Yeah, predicting the future in an environment where it's fairly uncertain at the moment is kind of a risky thing to do. But then if you want to get some sort of reward, you need to take some sort of risk. So why is it so important to try and predict the future when it comes to investing?
0: Yeah, I think now more than ever, considering and planning for the future in a way that keeps risks to a minimum is important and relevant for property investors of all scales. And to do that, we kind of first need to consider the drivers of what's to come. So I guess we'll touch on those a little bit as we go through some predictions for 2021 in this episode.
1: And presumably the biggest driver in the housing market is probably what's going on in the economy. So what's your prediction for 2021 and the economy?
0: Yeah, you're right. And I think in 2021, I foresee definitely continued economic uncertainty. There's not really any getting around this one. Economic uncertainties have had a substantial impact on the housing market forever, but... It's certainly been noted in 2020, and the impact of economic uncertainty in the UK housing market has been equaled actually in 2020 by another important risk factor, which is around politics and policy.
1: Yeah, in terms of policy and politics, they probably for the past, what would you say, three, four years, they've probably been one of the bigger drivers in the property sector. So what do you think is likely to happen in politics or policy specifically with housing?
0: Well, if 2020 is anything to go by, obviously, we can expect continued political uncertainty and policy shifts. But the truth is that the UK housing market is very heavily influenced by policy and tax decisions. And we've seen that with the recent temporary measures around stamp duty land tax and various other things. And I think key drivers behind the policy influences in the last few years. And yeah, you're right. It's sort of been, I would say, since about 2015, we've had this whole train of different regulations in the housing market. And it's all kind of been with a desire to create a more level playing field in terms of access to quality, affordable housing, for example, continued encouragement of first time buyers, and then encouragement towards a more professional rental market and also the need to raise tax revenues. So we've been hearing lots of conversation about capital gains tax coming up. And I think a common criticism of the policies that are affecting the housing market at the moment is a bit of a lack of joined up thinking and a bias towards policies that will create the right headlines. And sometimes this means unintended consequences. I would say this is probably the thing that I can pin my hat on saying, this is what will continue.
1: So given the policy and political changes or all or what you're saying is it's driving the industry towards a more professional outlook for landlords. So that's the aim. <laughs> yeah, well I suppose that's my question. When do you think that aim is achieved? So is there something people can look out for to think, well, okay, when we get to X position, then chances are policy will stop changing as frequently
0: because they will have achieved their longer term overall goal. It's probably easiest to give an example on this one. So we had the influence of section 24, which basically, long and short of it is, it meant that it's more tax efficient to own properties in a company. And it's no longer so tax efficient to own properties in your own name if you have leverage, which the majority of landlords do. I think this is a good example because you can see that there's a policy drive. The government wants to have greater control, greater transparency around who is providing housing and wants to be able to, for example, implement new health and safety policies and be able to track that they are being implemented, which is much harder to do when you've just got a load of individuals owning one or two properties. It's much easier when there's companies that own 5, 10, 20, 200 properties. So that's the driver behind that policy change. I've actually forgotten what your question was. (laughs)
1: Well, I suppose (laughs) using that as an example then, at what point, or is there data anywhere that we could look at or anybody else could look at that says the majority of landlords are individuals and they own them in their own name. However, now the majority, 80%, 90% of private landlords own their properties through a limited company. Therefore, the government has achieved their aim of making everybody who owns property in the UK for rental purposes owns it within a company. Because at that point, presumably, the government would stop trying to force everybody into, well, okay, now you should own it in a limited company because they've achieved that goal.
0: Yeah, I would hazard a guess that that's probably not being tracked, particularly seeing how many housing ministers we've had in the time since these changes have come in. And where the buck does or does not stop, but anyway, that's probably a little bit of a negative comment for me to be making. I would say that. Yes, do
1: their residential housing survey probably... report. Just going to say, there's
0: also the English Private Landlords Survey, which is really interesting source of data on the makeup of landlords. There's there's all sorts of surveys on this stuff, and it is really interesting because you can find out everything from the average investor, how many properties they own, to the actual demographics of them, and the fact that, for example, the majority of private landlords. In that English private landlord survey, were basically middle aged men. It's really interesting. And that's not particularly surprising necessarily, but it is interesting to know who owns the stock that is determining whether we have success or not, or the lack of success in our housing provision.
1: So I suppose using that and looking at the change from one year to the next. To see yeah. are people owning it through
0: companies or not. I so suppose that would be. And certainly they increasingly impact. are. They increasingly are. But I suppose when you started off with such a very diverse sector with so many landlords owning just one or two properties, there is a long way to go still. Gone off track. I mean, that was just a random question for you. But you're right. So you're right. I don't know what the definition of success is. And I think the definition of success is partly influenced by. To the point that i mentioned earlier around headlines because a lot of the time success or failure is effectively judged in the media for any policy whether it be around housing or whether it be around you know, how we've dealt with covid it's almost like how it comes across in the media is the definition of of how people see success or failure which is good and bad sometimes
1: and i suppose as well landlords aren't a particularly large group so they are generally quite an easy target to pick on and win some points with the rest of the country.
0: Not a particularly concentrated group. And I think that's quite key as well, because most landlords are kind of out for themselves in terms, I don't mean that in a rude way, I just mean they typically work independently from each other. There's not that many groups. There's things like the NRLA, but they typically represent smaller landlords. Then there's this whole group of corporate landlords who sort of have between 20 and 2,000 properties. No one really represents them very loudly in the media. And then you've got the institutions who, yes, they do have their own representation. But there's a whole lot of landlords in the middle who aren't particularly well represented in the press. And understandably as well, we're not a popular bunch, to be honest, because there are some rogue landlords. And that's exactly, to be honest, that is exactly where the policy is aiming. That's what the policies are aiming to stamp out is rogue and unprofessional delivery of housing.
1: Seems fair. And you've just touched on some of the institutions and obviously one of the biggest things for them is the finance costs of property investing. So the cost of money going forward into 2021 and beyond, what do you think is going to be happening there?
0: Yeah. And I think personally, in, well, it affects investors of all scales really, but it's interest rates remaining very low. And that means that banks that are actively lending in the property market will be doing so at relatively low borrowing costs for investors as well as for home buyers. And it also then means that there is an absence of compelling sustainable alternatives. I think 2020 has been a great example of that. We've had dramatic turbulence in the stock market with some winners, some losers. Um, And meanwhile, savings product returns have veered further and further towards zero. And for many of the investors that we work with, residential property and the sort of strong, sustainable returns that can offer are becoming increasingly more attractive relative to the alternatives that are actually available at the moment, partly as a result of very low interest rates.
1: So being quite a simple little folk, when I got into property, one of the sort of things that people need to always talk about is always buy land because they're not making any more of it. And ultimately, what sort of drives property markets is the supply and demand side of things. So can you see anything happening on either of those sides in residential property going forward?
0: Yeah, I think there's some really important and continuing trends. Like you say, land has continued to go up in value in areas where there's strong fundamentals. Obviously, property depreciates at the same time, but the net out of that is that property prices have risen substantially in 2020. So today, I think the statistics came out as 7.3% increase in the year to December 2020. We're recording in December. And I think what we can expect to see in terms of demand and supply. Firstly, and this is very important for investors in the sector, is continued growth in rental demand. So first-time buyers have really been feeling the pinch of affordability constraints with lots of banks lending less willingly to first-time buyers. And they increasingly appreciate the benefits and flexibility associated with the kind of access over ownership of renting. And it's also worth noting that within this, there will likely be continued inter and intra-regional changes in both sales and rental demand. This trend has been evidenced most clearly by falling demand for properties in our most expensive prime city centres versus the outskirts and towns outside the centres of cities. A great example of this is the fall in sales and rental demand for and then therefore the prices of prime central London flats versus larger properties in suburban outskirts of the city or in commuter or regional towns.
1: And that's all, I guess, demand side drivers?
0: What about the supply side? Yeah. So I think we touched on it earlier a little bit, but a really key driver in this is that since about 2015, we've seen this big policy shift aiming towards a more professional delivery of rental housing through increasing breadth and depth of regulations. And investors and operators are responding by either scaling up and making the effort to operate in a more professional manner or selling stock that they realize is actually increasingly difficult to manage properly on the side of their other existing commitments. So as providers become more professional, they're likely to focus on specific markets, whether that is geographically or in terms of demographics where they can then focus on delivering a really brilliant product. So it's becoming a little bit more consumer focused. And for our business, SPI Capital, this includes a very strong focus on key worker housing in the Northern Powerhouse and Oxford Cambridge Arc. But for others, it's about focusing maybe on young professionals in regional towns or students at Red Brick Universities or old age pensioners in coastal towns. There's lots of different niches. And I think this increasing regulation is sort of gradually leading to greater specialization in being compliant with those regulations and in delivering a very specific, very consumer focused product in the sector.
1: So if you don't just look at sort of the residential property market, but look specifically at the residential investment property market, do you think there's going to be anything that will impact on the supply and demand side of that for 2021
0: onwards? Yeah, I do. We've talked a little bit about increasing institutional residential investment. I think this will continue. So pension funds, insurers and private equity firms have increasingly been talking about the benefits of the UK private rental sector. And I think they'll continue to grow their investment in this space relative to other subsectors. And this might be in the form of build to rent schemes or through investing in private rental sector businesses who can give them access to what they want to need. Ultimately, it's all about for them achieving compelling yields and a sustainable, safe place to invest. We're also seeing the emergence of the corporate landlord. So as the aforementioned trend towards a more professionally managed private rental sector continues, many sideline landlords are recognising that they don't have the knowledge or the skills or the network that's needed to manage rental investments in a way that's professional and compliant. And at the other end of the scale is the rise in institutional investment that we've mentioned. But in the middle, there's this emergent class of landlords who are scaling up and focusing their efforts on delivering a great product across 20, 200, or 2,000 properties. And I think finally, we're seeing an increase in demand for professional end to end portfolio management. So, specifically, what we are seeing in our business is this kind of demand from high net worth individuals. And it's this acceptance that diversifying your residential portfolio can be a great way to reduce. Portfolio risk, for example, investing in 20 flats rather than one prime London flat. However, in reducing portfolio risk, this strategy also increases the burden of management, which makes hiring a professional to oversee your portfolio all the more worthwhile.
1: Okay, cool. So that's, I guess, more on the property specific side. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners neither know nor care, but I tend to invest across the board in all the different asset classes. And one of the themes that seems to be developing quite strongly in some of the other asset classes is the importance of social responsibility. So what's happening there?
0: Yeah, so socially responsible investment now amounts to some 30 trillion of assets under management each year. And significant funding has been allocated to socially responsible property investment. And I'd say this trend looks set to continue. The turbulent environment of 2020 has forced naysayers to recognize that investing in a way that is economically resilient with positive social impacts can be better for profit levels, for people, and for planet. So it's that triple bottom line.
1: And what would that look like in the property sector? So I know it's something yeah. that we're trying yeah. to in SPI. What does that actually look like for us? And obviously, that's something only we can
0: yeah. comment on. Yeah, spoiler alert. There'll be some more content coming out about that in the new year. But there's a whole range of different interpretations. And one of the biggest problems with socially responsible property investment is the lack of consistent measurement because it's very difficult to say, oh, my property is more socially responsible than yours because you do always have that trade-off between the environmental, social and governance aspects. But one of the things that we have identified as a bit of an opportunity is in effectively upcycling and recycling properties So buying properties that they might be 20, 30, 40 years old, they might be 100 years old, but they need a bit of work to get them to be environmentally friendly and to get them to be in a good standard of living. But actually, they are already been built. So the carbon cost of sort of improving them is relatively low compared to building a new property. So it's that upcycling and then really focusing on providing socially responsible housing. So for example, whether you're giving discounts to key workers for who want to live in your particular property or making sure that just that the properties are particularly appealing to ordinary key workers. There's a couple of different things that we've been doing and looking at. Is there anything I've forgotten to mention in
1: there? So what would an ESG positive property investment look like for a company. It's something that we're looking to try and do as SPI capital. So, what do you think for other companies, and I guess specifically for SPI, What does
0: that look like? Yeah, there's a whole range of different interpretations. And that partly is a result of there not being very consistent measurement of what socially responsible looks like. And there's all sorts of trade-offs made. But from our side, it's about taking existing stock, improving it and making sure that it really does appeal and meet the needs of key workers. So making sure that it is high quality, making sure that it is improved so that it's environmentally friendly if it's older stock, and making sure that it's at the right price for key workers who want to, for example, work in the hospital that's nearby to the block of flats that you're purchasing in Salford, for example. And for us, it's really about making sure that it meets that social need, but it's done in an environmentally friendly way.
1: Sounds good. And one of the other big themes that's attracting a lot of attention for all of the wrong reasons really, is the health and safety and the risk management side of property investing. What do you think next in the property sector when it comes to things like that?
0: Yeah, you're right. It's been absolute disaster for so many people, which is really, really tragic. And quite rightly, we're beginning to now see, well, increasing burden of regulation and increasing acceptance That a focus on risk mitigation and management and health and safety is absolutely vital for property operators and investors. So in some parts of the property market for many years, we had sort of rogue landlords who got away with taking substantial health and safety, regulatory and even financial risks. And I think 2020 has highlighted the need for investors from all walks of life, whether it's the sort of one man band rogue landlord, or whether it's even a big and very substantial institutional investor to take steps at each stage of the way really to strategically identify, manage, and mitigate risks, whether it's in relation to things like cladding or licensing, or even just the operational management of day-to-day tenants.
1: Okay. So there's, there's been quite a few recurring themes that I think have come up. So it's probably worth, can you just give us a quick recap then of the trends that you think are going to play the biggest role in 2021 in the property sector?
0: Yeah, so continued economic uncertainties, continued political uncertainties and policy shifts, interest rates remaining low, the absence of compelling sustainable alternatives, continued growth in rental demand and inter- and intra-regional changes in sales and rental demand, in particular with falling demand for properties in the most expensive city centres, increasing regulations aiming at a more professional delivery of rental housing, increasing institutional residential investment in the private rental sector, the emergence of a corporate landlord, an increase in demand for professional end-to-end portfolio management, increasing importance of social responsibility and the increasing focus on risk mitigation, management, health and safety.
1: That was a nice little recap. So finally then, with all of that being said, do you think it's still worth investing in residential property?
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, there's plenty of opportunities to be had. I think at the moment we're seeing sort of between five and 10 million of assets that meet our criteria, which are relatively stringent each month. And we expect this to increase over the coming months because of all the trends that are happening in the market and all the change that we're experiencing. So for those who are looking to preserve and grow wealth through residential investment, there is a lot to go at whether you're planning to put the effort in yourself or whether you're planning to work with providers who are putting the effort in on your behalf.
1: Sounds good. Well, I think that nicely wraps up the topic.
0: So unless there's anything else you wanted to add to it. No, I think we're all good. thanks, Damien. We'll speak soon. Cheers. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.